When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Jentz. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 117 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Thomas Christopher, author of The New American Landscape, Garden Revolution, and Nature into Art, about environmentally friendly gardening. The plant profile is on Beautyberry, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events. This episode is sponsored by Nature's Lawn and Garden. This episode of Garden DC, we're joined by Thomas Christopher. He is a author, horticulturalist, and podcaster. Welcome, Thomas. Hi, Kathy. We're going to talk all about environmentally friendly gardening, a topic that's near and dear to your heart. Uh, but before we jump into that, we want to talk a little bit about you and your background and dialing it all the way back to, to baby Thomas, if that was what your parents called you. And asking if you had a green thumb when you were born or chlorophyll in your veins. Was I born with chlorophyll in my veins? Perhaps. I inherited a, a garden heritage. I wasn't particularly interested in, I love being outdoors and out in the woods and uh, in the country as a little boy. My mother was a passionate gardener and my father loved to plant trees when I was about seven years old, my parents bought a, oh, an old cow pasture up in the Thousand Islands of Southern Ontario. And my father spent every summer planting trees in the, uh, in the old meadows and gradually converted it to uh, groves of woodland. It was, very, it was very impressive over a period of years. That is a lot of tree planting. It was a lot of tree planting. And we had to haul, but my sisters and I had to haul buckets to water the trees. Hmm. Did that enamor you of gardening or make you resentful? I wasn't crazy about hauling buckets, but I was fascinated by watching all these little trees come up. And then my mother was always planting things and weeding things and growing flowers. And she was, she was quite the gardener. She'd uh, grown up out West and had just fallen in love with gardening as a child and brought that East with her. What really took off when I really got involved was as a teenager, I was looking for summer work and there were just no jobs. And finally, my mother suggested I do yard work for people and she kind of coached me through it. And so I learned a little bit every summer and went to college. Mm -hmm at Brown University and studied classics of all things. 
and had a wonderful time. But by the third year, realized I was not going to be a classics professor. <laughs> and I miss being outside. So I enrolled at the Student Horticulturist Program at the New York Botanical Garden and moved to the Bronx. And my classics professors all thought I was eccentric, to say the least. But I, I had a great time at the New York Botanical Garden. And then that led you to? Well, you know, it was interesting. I learned a very traditional kind of gardening there. A lot of the, the finest gardeners I worked for were European immigrants, either Italian or German. And they had come up through a traditional uh, apprenticeship. And they insisted we learn the, the old-fashioned way of doing things, and which was great, you know, in terms of learning the craftsmanship. But it was... and. A lot of what we learned was nature-related in that to be a good gardener, you know, you had to match the plant to the site and that kind of thing. But basically, it was recreating European landscapes in uh, New York City. That included having clients outside the city as well? Yeah. You know, after I put, put in two years at the Botanical Garden, I went to work for Columbia University on a campus, a research campus they had on the... Uh, Hudson River Palisades, an old estate, and it had been originally landscaped in 1929 by Olmsted Brothers. And there were still the remains of their gardens here and there, although they'd been badly neglected. And uh, But my job was to sort of save what I could and bring back what I could, which was really fun. I spent 10 years there and uh, did a lot of planting and cultivating. And, oh, I got in touch with Olmsted Brothers. There was still an office in Brookline, Mass, and got plans for the original estate. They'd done 187 drawings. And I got about a dozen of those and tried replanting some of There was a little formal garden, an Italianate formal garden that was uh, surrounded by uh, stone walls and trellises. And I replanted that as an antique rose garden, an heirloom rose garden because uh, I really couldn't put in all the perennials they'd had. I, there was just me and, and a couple of groundsmen. Mm-hmm. And I uh, had a wonderful time. But, you know, it was it was interesting. One of the things I learned there, and this is something I believe strongly about gardening, is that you can't garden very long without becoming aware of natural systems. And in taking care of the roses, I did what I'd been taught to do, which is I used uh, synthetic fertilizers, and I sprayed once a week with a mix of fungicides and insecticides and re- reapplied the fungicides within 24 hours of every rainstorm. And I had disease-free roses, but within a couple of years, the soil collapsed. It went from a good loam to an impoverished clay. And that was a real wake-up for me. But that sounds like it was a, a great experience. It was. And that was actually, it was the, what they were studying at that research institute was environmental science. And that's where I met my wife, who's an environmental scientist. And she's been a huge influence on opening my eyes to what's been happening in the environment. I mean, she was talking 35 years ago about climate change and how we needed to change the way we were doing things. And over time, I began more and more to see the results of kind of our bad relationship with the environment and began to see gardening as a way we could explore a better relationship on a personal level with our surrounding landscape and with the environment in general. And I love it now. It's, it's what my podcast is about, Growing Greener. Um, it's about 
really uh, discovering your relate, rediscovering a, a new relationship to to the environment, a healthier relationship to the environment. And one thing I love about it is it's a way to talk to people. It doesn't, you know, it's, it's not political gardening. So there are red state garden. They aren't red state gardeners, really. There aren't red state gardeners. There aren't blue state gardeners. They're just beginning gardeners, experienced gardeners, and good gardeners. And I'm still learning how to be a good gardener. <laughs> and I'm glad you pointed that out, Thomas, that it's not political, that environmentally friendly, you know, crosses all spectrums. And we'll talk about some of the aspects of that. And also that gardening is something that you learn over an entire lifetime. I mean, few of us could call ourselves experts. Very much. I, I think that's true. And there are people I that are heroes for me, like Doug Tallamy or Rebecca McMacken, who in the last 10 years helped to put together uh, Brooklyn Bridge Park. Um, but they, they're still learning, and, uh, and so am I. And before we dive into our overall topic, let's talk about your home garden for a little bit, where you're located at in situation to your nearest big city, what your planting zone is, and what you like to grow. Well, that's, yeah, those are all very pertinent questions. I, during the week, I live in Middletown, Connecticut, which is a, with real Yankee uh, imagination is named for what it is. It's in the, it's a little city in the middle of Connecticut. It's also where Wesleyan University is, and that's where my wife teaches. But she grew up in the Berkshires, and I discovered Southern Berkshire County in Western Massachusetts through her. And so we have a house up in the Southern Berkshires and we go there every weekend and that's where I do most of my gardening. So Middletown is zone six. Uh, the Southern Berkshires were zone five, but that's changing, of course. Interesting. So now both of your gardens are pretty much zone six. That's really, that's really the case. It gets colder up in, in the Southern Berkshires, but it's much hotter in the summer than it used to be. My wife always says that when she was growing up, summer evenings, you'd end up wearing a light sweater, and that is not the case anymore. I mean, mm. we've had a heat, heat wave and drought this summer, just like a lot of the Northeast. And what is your last frost in the spring and your first frost typically in the fall? Last frost is in, I'll talk from here on in, if I talk about gardening, it'll be about the Southern Berkshires, which is where I really garden. So last frost is well, mid to third week of May. And uh, first frost is it's sometime in early October. Yeah, I think that you have a lot in common with most of the Mid-Atlantic in, in that aspect. And maybe a little bit later, first frost, like mid-October to late October, depending always, right? <laughs> Every year is different. Yes. And also it's it's generally cooler mm-hmm. and cloudier. Uh, I have to, I've over, over the years, have learned about a couple of types of tomatoes that will actually fruit in that climate. We're having a great tomato crop this summer. It's been so hot and sunny. But typically, there are only a couple of types of tomatoes I can raise that will fruit well for me in in the Berkshires, which has been part of my encouragement mm-hmm. to grow things from seed, which I think is one of the great joys of gardening. And what are those two tomatoes, might I ask? Well, there's, let's see, there's a, a Czech tomato, an heirloom tomato called Stupich, uh, Stupicha, which is, uh, mm-hmm. you, and I order that through, you can get that, you know, through, you can Google that and find sources for that. 
Yeah, and the spelling of that, because I hear people pronounce it so many different ways. Right. I have no idea of how to pronounce it. I, sometimes I read it as stupice, which I know is not correct. But, but that's, that's how it's spelled. It's S-T-U-P-I-C-E. Mm-hmm. And I think you are pronouncing it correctly. Stupice uh, might be Italian. Yes, yes. And I've, I've got a background in, in Italian, spent a lot of time in Italy. So that's mm-hmm. that's my tendency with a foreign language is to revert to Italian. Um, there's also some tomatoes that came out of Oregon that uh, where I guess wherever they were being grown has a re- relatively cool and cloudy climate. So there's one called Siletz that I'm having good success with too. And that's S-I-L-E-T-Z. And that's some great tips for our overall topic of environmentally friendly gardening. Let's first define that term, because that's kind of a loaded term, if you think about it. It is, and it's people tend to get very dogmatic about it. And I think that's unfortunate. I think you have to be flexible and leave people room to do what they want within that. Essentially, it's working with natural systems and not using large amounts of artificial irrigation and chemicals and synthetic fertilizers to substitute for matching the plant to the site and working with worth working with the natural systems. One of the things I'm going to be exploring this fall, for instance, is using cover crops to add organic material to my vegetable garden. My vegetable garden's my real passion these days. Cover crops is such a wonderful topic, and we can get a little bit into that. And I'm glad you're saying that um, environmentally friendly is a spectrum, I think, is I'm reading into your answer, and that you don't have to go all the way um, organic or rip out your entire lawn. It could be a process or on a, on a kind of bell curve. Exactly. And you, I don't think you have to go 100% native either if, if you want to. I, I choose mostly native plants. In fact, it's pretty much for ornamentals, it's, it's all I use at this point because we're out in a undisturbed area. Well, it's, it's second growth, but there aren't very many invasive plants in the woods around where, where I spend my weekends and I'm not anxious to introduce any. So I'm careful about that. But, you know, as Doug Tallamy says, you know, if you if his research has indicated that if you go 70% native in your planting, you'll have good habitat for native pollinators and wildlife. And you can still find room for the, the other things that you love and don't want to give up. And you don't have to sit there and pull out a calculator like, <laughs> right. you, uh, with your plant material. So if you have a few huge oak trees or a few contributing type of um native meadow or something, you know, 10% is lawn or something like that. Right. And another point that I should add is, and this is something I learned from Larry Weiner. Uh, we worked together on a book, Garden Revolution. And we spent, I spent three years writing that book with him, which was a great experience. It was like a graduate course in ecological gardening. And his gardens, he's a, he's a very skillful designer aesthetically, but unlike the gardens that I learned on at the New York Botanical Garden, which the idea was to come up with kind of a picture of how you wanted the landscape and you draw that out and then impose it on the landscape. His, his model and now mine is more to try to create an ecology, an ecosystem. And kind of, it's, it's at times very hand off. You let the, you insert natives into the landscape and you try to do it, you try to plant in communities, plants that 
collaborate well together, and then you let them kind of find their own place. And I find that fascinating. Yeah, that's very much principle of right plant, right place, but also you are researching and experimenting with those combinations to see what will thrive. And I've been to a couple of Larry Wiener's talks and I, I love that book uh, that you uh, co-wrote with him. And he doesn't have a static choice. Like if something doesn't work, he replaces it, which I love. And he also relies a lot on volunteers. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you've put in, oh, I don't know, milkweed and it starts popping up at various places. Well, that's that's not a problem. Those aren't weeds necessarily they can you may decide you don't want all of them and and remove some of them but you may decide that it's great you know and and it requires much less uh fastidious maintenance and planting if you let the plants that are successful in the area find their spot and propagate themselves that is a good definition of environmentally friendly gardening is is letting the plants that want to succeed succeed and not imposing um, your wishes so hard on them. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Another aspect of environmental friendly gardening that I is I was going to say is near and dear to my heart is the conservation of resources and not being wasteful with what you have. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's super important. Um, for instance, one of the, partly it's enforced on me up in the Berkshires. We have a well. We're not on city water, and the well is not very prolific. So I can't just water. I can't just keep this, the sprinklers running all the time because it would dry, it would run the well dry. So I have to be very I have to work with the soil to make it absorbent and retent, retentive of moisture, and then water very strategically, which has been a, a real trick this summer because we've been in a fairly serious drought up there. So that's one resource. I think water is a huge resource and people tend to take it for granted and use it way too extravagantly. I was just reading a statistic from the Environmental Protection Agency that on any average day, Americans use 8 billion gallons of drinking water to uh, irrigate their landscapes. And that's just obscene. So I don't do that. And then um, I've reduced tillage because tillage... uh, exposes the organic material in the soil to oxygen. You get a temporary burst of nutrients as the organic material breaks down, as it oxidizes, but then you've impoverished the soil. So I've reduced tillage and emphasized very much, again, I'm trying to find things like the cover crops that will maintain the organic matter in the soil without bringing in a lot of um, resources from outside the site. And the no-till method also prevents you from disturbing and bringing up all those that seed bank of weeds that are under the soil that you're just churning them up and bringing them to the surface. That's very true. And another problem with bringing in organic matter to uh, replace what you use up through tillage is that you can introduce a lot of problems with it. For instance, I know people who've brought in compost and ended up with those Asian jumping worms, those invasive earthworms. And I very, I, so I don't bring in compost into my garden unless it's been hot composted. And I'm very confident that it's not got any earthworm eggs in it. And that's another good reason to use, use cover crops instead of bringing in topsoil or 
compost. And making your own compost. Make your own compost too, yeah. That's actually my wife's activity. Hmm. Does she make a real science out of it or is she very laissez-faire, just pile it up and let it go? Um, My wife, Suzanne, is very laissez-faire about the compost. I think gardening for her, you know, she has to be very scientific all week long. And I think gardening is is an escape from that on weekends. I can totally relate to that. (laughs) And also being um, a piler with the compost and not being so scientific and, you know, making sure that the greens and browns equal each other or, you know, the proportions are so equal. Um, I feel like it all breaks down eventually. Well, that's that's a fair, fair description. And do you compost around your new plantings or do you do it once a year or do you just do it as needed? Just do it as needed. I will typically when we put in new plantings, we'll we'll spread some compost around. Um, We have very little native soil. It's a glacial landscape. And when we started digging garden beds, uh, my wife called it uh, mining for soil. You'd find a vein and you'd follow it down between the boulders. So it's, there's not a lot of natural soil there. The first couple of years there, we used to go to the, the cafe on the Wesleyan campus and pick up all their coffee grounds, take them up and dump them on the garden on the weekend. And we did that for a couple of years and brought up countless uh, pickup truck loads of coffee grounds. And really, we've had to really boost the organic matter initially, but now it's, now it's pretty good. And I can imagine that's really well draining with those veins between the boulders. It is sometimes, sometimes too much. So that can, that can be a challenge because you want to keep it moist over the summer. For planting trees in that type of environment, how would they find a place to put down significant roots? Well, if you, if you use native species that are adapted to that landscape, they'll find a way, you know, I, don't believe in amending the soil or changing the soil with tree planting, if you can possibly avoid it. Because that what that does is it creates a little locus for the tree roots to flourish in, and then they never spread outside. I mean, this is based on research from like Cornell University. And then the roots don't spread outside the original planting hole, which means that if you get a drought or something like that, the trees are very vulnerable to drying up and dying. So I'm, I'm not a great believer in amending the, the planting soil for trees. And that's very similar to an urban tree situation where you're confined to a, a small tree box and they can't spread out their roots very much. And they kind of uh, have a lifespan of about maybe a decade because of that, because eventually they're just going to snap or, or fall over because they can't expand the roots or they can't call on more nutrients or moisture, as you say, when it, when there's a drought. That's very true. Yes. For tree planting for the home gardener, um, it always comes to a point of, if I put in more trees, I'm going to have a lot more shade gardening. Where are you on that, on that continuum? Do you want more sun for your vegetable plot or do you think we should be planting more trees? Oh, I think we definitely should be planting more trees, but I, I do keep my, I have a very sunny spot for the vegetables and that's essential. You need sun to, to drive the, the, the growth of the vegetables. And there are a few things that you can do in semi-shade, like some of the greens like lettuce will do okay in semi-shade, but basically you need sun for the vegetables. But I think tree planting is, is so essential these days because of climate change and not just to sequester carbon 
but particularly in suburban areas to cool the to cool the landscape and cool the area it's uh just a, a must exactly and for energy savings but then you always have that debate right if you want solar power and you want to be environmentally friendly that way it's hard to have big growth trees and have solar at the same time yeah it is you have to do a lot of plan a planning you know this is not a this is not something you can do without thinking about it what are some of your favorite trees to plant for the mid-atlantic region Oh, for the Mid-Atlantic region. Well, you know, I'm so obsessed with fruits and vegetables. I've been planting pawpaws. I'm very excited about that. I've got a couple of pawpaws that are doing well. And then I just planted a little orchard on a sunny slope of cider apples. I make hard cider in the fall. My wife and I have made hard cider for 25, 30 years in the fall. So I've always been collecting apples from, I know, old apple trees around the Southern Berkshires and I've got to deal with people that I, they'll let me pick, take their apples in the fall and we press the apples and ferment the cider and bottle it. But I just this spring planted 20 semi-dwarf cider apple trees. So I'm very excited about that. And are they grafted onto hardy stock or where are you sourcing those cider apples? Yeah, they are grafted onto hardy stock. There's a Cummings nursery in, I think, I believe it's in Geneva, New York. It's uh, spelled C-U-M-M-I-N-G-S, Cummings Nursery. And they are they do a lot of custom grafting and they have a huge selection of heirloom as well as modern apples, and including a whole selection of cider apples, which are great. Hmm. And how do the cider apples differ from a regular eating apple? Well, that's that's an interesting question. Some of them will Many of the American cider apples are sort of dual purpose, that they, they're okay for dessert apples. A lot of the European cider apples don't taste very good until they've been juiced and fermented. They're what a friend of mine called spitters. You take a bite to taste it and spit it out because you wouldn't want to <laughs> chew it up and swallow it. Uh, some of them are very bitter, very tannic. And uh, they express that, you know, it's sort of like wine grapes. You don't want to make wine out of... Uh, Oh, Thompson seedless grapes or Concord grapes. Well, you, and you can, of course, and people have, but it doesn't make a very high quality of wine. So you want a, an apple that when the sugar is gone, there's enough character to its flavor that you'll have flavor for the cider. And apples are notorious fruit trees for needing spraying because of fire, fire blight and rust and other issues. So how do you grow those in an environmentally friendly manner? Well, that's that remains to be seen. There's a, I think his name was Michael Phillips. He just died, unfortunately. But he was a real guru. He was based in New Hampshire, I believe. His orchard was in New Hampshire. And he did a lot of work with organic ways to raise apples. One of the advantages of the cider apples is that if they're imperfect, it really doesn't matter. I mean, many of the trees that I've been collecting fruit from for the last 25 years are never sprayed. And imperfect is okay for making cider. It's not like you're serving them up on a, a dessert display or anything. Exactly. So if you've got a little bit of scab or something like that, or the birds have been pecking it, it really doesn't matter because you're going to crush it up and press it. And I think that's another aspect of environmentally friendly gardening that's very apt is that we're sharing with wildlife and there's not going to be perfection in every leaf. Yeah, I think it's, you know, that's 
been a part of integrated pest management for a long time, but I think it, I'm even more conscious of it that you have to, when I'm planting a crop, I try to think if I can tolerate the kind of damage it will probably experience. Uh, and it has to be, and the problem has to get pretty severe before I, I do any treatment to curb the insects. And even then I'll use maybe neem oil or something like that. And even that very sparingly, because, you know, if it's toxic for, oh, like I treated my asparagus patch a number of years ago, it had asparagus beetles really badly. And it was the neem uh, got rid of the asparagus beetles, but of course, anything else that was feeding on that was liable to be damaged too. So now what I do instead is I cut down the asparagus in the fall and haul all the old stems off site so that anything that's overwintering in the stems doesn't make it through to the next spring. Yeah, I think a lot of the IPM principle of removing the diseased plant tissues and not composting them and introducing them back into your bed is a really good practice. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that kind of sanitation is, is really key, I think. And then just developing a tolerance, you know, not, not sort of, I just, gosh, I mean, I date back to when it was, you know, better living through chemistry days. And if you saw an insect, any insect in the garden, you started to freak out and you reach for the insecticide. And now, you know, of course, you think, well, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's very beneficial and that we need insects in the gardens, even plant eating insects, because they're, of course, the food for the insectivorous insects and some of them, some of the plant eating insects are produce caterpillars that are food for songbird nestlings. So you need a balanced, a balanced ecosystem in the garden. And that involves having a, a rich selection of insects. I have a friend. I just had coffee with him this morning. He lives about two blocks away and he's a physicist at Wesleyan University, but his passion is taking photographs of insects in his backyard. He doesn't spray. He has taken photographs of, he estimates 500 different species of insects in his little quarter acre suburban backyard. And yeah, I would say getting to know the insects is the key because you want to know which are the beneficial, which are the ones that might be doing a little bit too much damage or are invasive to our area. Yeah, invasive, of course, is a problem. And, but he's, you know, it's become for my friend, it's become one of the great sources of pleasures of his garden is the insects. And there, when you look at, he uses a macro lens. And when you look at the photographs, they are beautiful and striking, many of them. Most of them are, are fascinating. So it's, it's another way to enjoy your garden. Now, I will say that uh, I used, uh, I spread milky spore disease throughout, throughout my lawn and, and landscape up in the Southern Berkshires when I had a, Japanese beetle infestation. And later when they, uh, one patch of them reappeared, I used uh, parasitic nematodes to get rid of them again. So there are, there are ways that you can deal with invasive insects without trashing the environment. And as you say, it is a matter of creating a balance so that if there's a little bit of damage there, it's not so overwhelming. Right. And you need some of the the uh, plant-eating insects is to support the populations of, of predators. And if you go through and spray like all your aphids, then you're going to lose the insects that feed on the aphids. And you'll have this kind of bounce-back phenomenon where 
all of where you'll get rid of most of the first generation of aphids, but then you'll have a population explosion because you've killed all the predators. So you have to think in terms of cultivating it as a healthy ecosystem. Another way to phrase, I think, environmentally friendly gardening is sustainable gardening is another term we use. And I was just looking at your book, The New American Landscape, um, which you edited, and I think you wrote a couple of the chapters, and maybe we can talk about some of the lessons that are in that book and how they apply to environmentally friendly gardening. Yeah, you know, I talked a little bit about, um, that was where I got a time when I, this was several years ago, I got involved with more sustainable lawns because lawns have been, you know, since I was a horticultural student, progressive gardeners and environmentalists have been saying, oh, we got to get rid of all of the lawns. We're going to replace them all with meadows. And we've done a good deal of that. And that's been great. But, you know, the area of lawn in the United States has just continued to expand. People like lawns and they have some virtues. They're much, they're inexpensive, relatively speaking, to install. They're relatively, they're laborious, but they're simple to maintain. So you can pay somebody to do it where you probably can't afford to have a horticulturist come in and do your, your gardening for you unless you're very wealthy. And they're, they're more tolerant of foot traffic and kids playing on them than most other landscape treatments. So lawns aren't going away. So I've spent some time working on lawns that are more biodiverse and more friendly to wildlife. Hmm. And that was, a part of, that was a part of the new American landscape, my contribution to that. I would say, you know, reduction of the lawn could be one of your goals or replacing it with ground cover. But again, if you like the look of turf grass or if you have an HOA that demands turf grass, that there are much more sustainable ways for maintaining that lawn. Yeah, I, you know, I'm very much in favor. Of course, I'm passionate about planting other things. And I've, in fact, I just reduced my lawn up in the Berkshires by a half by uh, planting a pollinator meadow over, I've got 5,000 square feet pollinator meadow. And it's starting after three years, it's starting to look really good this summer. And it's been very exciting. And I've been seeing, you know, all sorts of bees and goldfinches in there eating the seeds from the flowers. uh, And it's been very exciting. So I'm definitely in favor of reducing the lawn, but I I don't tell people, oh, you've just got to get rid of the lawn. Lawns are evil. You know, you can do things. I mean, one of the things we do in the rest of the garden that we've never done very much in the lawn is in the rest of the garden, we assess the, the soil and the site and the exposure and the climate and try to find plants that are adapted to that. Whereas in the lawn, we tend to just go in and, you know, the tendency has been to go in and plant Kentucky bluegrass. And there are all kinds of different grasses. One of the things I did when I got interested in this was I went to the library, back to the library at the New York Botanical Garden and got out all kinds of lawn maintenance manuals from the turn of the 20th century before there was the chemical industry. And it was very interesting. They talked about all kinds of different grasses that you could use. They said you had to have clover in your lawn. You couldn't have a good lawn without clover. And a number of the books had lists of wildflowers that you could include in the lawn that you needed. They said you needed to diversify the lawn. And they didn't have the term biodiversity, but that's what really they were talking about. So I think you know, that was a part of our tradition. We lost it after World War II and we got all these chemical weed killers and insecticides. And I think it's something we can go back to. You know, I'm very, I just had a, a conversation on growing greener with a woman 
in the Minneapolis area who's been doing a lot of bee lawns. And the University of Minnesota did a lot of research on simple things that you could like, uh, oh, creeping thyme and heal all that you can, and clover, white Dutch clover, that you can include with your lawn that will help to support pollinators. And they found in a study of one of these bee lawns that over 50 species of native bees came in and used the lawn for as a nectar and pollen source. So you can, you can accomplish a lot without just uh, eliminating the lawn. Of course, the first thing is you got to stop using chemicals on it. And we had uh, Paul Tukey on. Oh, he's a, great. He's fabulous. A recent episode talking about sustainable lawn care. So for listeners who want to know more about maintaining a lawn without chemical inputs, um, that's a great episode to listen to. And definitely adding in clover into the mix and not just having one monoculture of Kentucky bluegrass would also help you from kind of that dead look in late summer as well. Yeah, I use a lot of uh, fine fescues in my lawn. They're adapted to low fertility soils. They don't need nearly as much fertilization. They really don't need any if you in, add in the clover. And they're pretty drought tolerant. Um, I did another lawn for somebody who had a semi-shaded backyard that was trampled to mud by her two dogs. And what I did there was I planted, uh, I went and found, uh, I used turf-type tall fescue, which is deep-rooted and very tough and found uh, cultivars that were recommended for use in seaside gardens that were salt tolerant, so they tolerate the dog urine better. And they have a great lawn now. And they don't use weed killers. They don't use chemicals on it. They just cut it. And, uh, you know, you can do these, you can do these things without, without sort of giving the environment a black eye. And have you tried any of those Nomo mixes? Well, the fine fescues are generally a basis of the Nomo mixtures. And I, I put them in for some people. I mean, I put in a lawn for another close friend here in Middletown who they now mow a couple of times a summer is all. And, uh, it you know, it grows up and you can get away with mowing it only really only once or once once a summer, really, if you want to, when it starts to send up uh, seed stock, flower stalks in the late spring. Mm-hmm. And then just let it, it'll grow up about, you know, 10 inches tall and flop over and you'll get this kind of soft wavy effect, which I find quite attractive. Or you can mow it, you know, once every month to six weeks mm-hmm. and let it go with that. And, you know, it's, it's much less work and it is requires very little input of resources. And it's just a much, you know, it's a very practical lawn. It saves you a lot of work. And how about the no mow may movement? What do you think about that? Well, that's interesting. I think it's a, a great concept. One thing I would say, and I talked to, this was again, I talked to, uh, in my podcast to an ecologist from uh, Canada, the University of Guelph. And she pointed out that it came out of Northern Europe, that movement, the Nomo May movement, and that a lot of the weeds that are common to American lawns most of most of the grasses we grow in American lawns are not native grasses, at mm-hmm. least in the East Coast. In the West, they've done a lot more experimentation with native grasses. But in the East, it's mostly introduced grasses, and the weeds that flourish with them are mostly introduced weeds. And they may not be the best possible diet for native pollinators, such as bumblebees. So you might think about doing a bee lawn and uh, or, or um, you, what she said was, 
you know, no mow may is fine, but plant an area pollinator garden at the edge of it. You know, take some take some of that lawn back and turn it into a pollinator garden. And so there's a more varied, healthier diet for the native pollinators. Mm -hmm. And I kind of think, as you said, it originated in Europe. So for us in the mid-Atlantic and maybe tending towards the south, like Virginia, North Carolina, if you're going to do it, it really should be no mow April because not, mow, point, not yeah. mowing in April in all of May, it's just, I can't even imagine pushing a real mower back through that. You would just not get anywhere. That's a very good point. Yes, the timing is the timing is different. Of course, that's part of working with the natural systems again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you lose the alliteration, but you know, really, the the month you should skip is that, that first month of growth, maybe. Very true. For environmental friendly gardening, now that we talked about the lawn, let's talk a little bit about your perennial beds. And I know you're a big advocate of planting native, and we talked about the seventy thirty mix. Are there any particular natives that you recommend to beginner gardeners that, you know, look good and are low maintenance? Ooh, that's a tricky one. Um, you know, one of the things I love, and it's interesting, many of the perennials, which are really popular in Europe, of course, are North American natives originally, like summer flocks. Um, I've got a type of summer flocks that a gardener from southern georgia gave me she said that it had been proved mildew resistant even in florida and it's kind of colonized around my garden it's interesting some of every once in a while it'll pop up it's sort of it's the pinkish flowers um but every once in a while a, a white uh clone will pop up from it so it's seeded around the garden bee balm is great i think you know one of the keys is relaxing your standards a little bit about what looks good. You know, if you've got to have this very Edwardian Gertrude Jekyll look, you're going to be out there working all the time. Um, if you're willing to accept a somewhat shaggier look where the, where again, the plants are finding their own spot, you can do it with a lot less work and a lot less inputs. One of the interesting things was, you know, I got very friendly with the gardeners at Wave Hill a wonderful public garden in the Bronx in New York City. And I did a, a book for Wave Hill on, uh, it's called Nature and Art about their way of gardening, which is not particularly an ecologically uh, oriented kind of gardening. They're much more into traditional craftsmanship, but they're, they've, they're skillful gardeners and they're very much into, you know, they've got these very beautiful, gardens that are famous, you know, it's one of the most famous public gardens in the United States, and yet they rely very heavily on volunteers. Uh, they've got all kinds of plants that pop up around the garden, and they just remove the ones they don't like. Incidentally, rather than pulling weeds, one of the great things to do with weeds is just cut them back to the ground as you go by. Mm -hmm. Because the you'll exhaust, you'll exhaust the uh, all except for the that won't work so well with annual weeds, but with perennial weeds, you'll tend to exhaust it and the neighboring plants will close in over it. And if you pull the weed and it'll gradually phase it out, it'll starve it out. Whereas if you pull the weeds, you disturb the soil. And that's, of course, weeds are commonly a response to disturbed soil. They're opportunists. So the less you disturb your soil, the better. And that brings you back, of course, to no-till gardening. Mm -hmm. And... I've read several articles online that have the headline, 
that says something like diagnose your soil issues by what weeds you have. Do you subscribe to that? Oh yeah. I, you know, if, if you're wondering why plantains are popping up in your lawn, for instance, well, they're, they're a symptom. I mean, and Paul Tukey talks about this. He has a great section in his book on organic lawn maintenance about reading the weeds. And, you know, the plantains are a response to compacted soil. And that means that you, you need to aerate, you know, this is, uh, this is, well, late, late summer, early fall is a great season for lawn work. And if you aerate and overseed with a good grass that is adapted to your site, you can do a lot of the maintenance. You can do a lot of uh, keeping the lawn healthy and with an acceptable level of weeds without any, any kind of, uh, other lead, weed may, uh, weed control. And how about adding inputs like fertilizer or an organic kelp fertilizer or anything like that to your vegetables and, and your perennials or native beds? Yeah, vegetables are, are you know, they draw a lot on the soil. I mean, it's, it's an unnatural situation. That's not an ecology. That's, you know, you're, you're growing for production if you grow traditional vegetables. So I do use uh, an organic gardener, uh, excuse me, an organic fertilizer in the spring. I apply it uh, and then use a lot of compost, which adds some nutrients. And, and I like the organic fertilizers because they release, as they're released into the soil, into the plants by uh, the breakdown by the microflora and fauna. And that's active during the season when the plants are most active too. So the plants, so you're feeding the plants when they need it. Whereas synthetic fertilizers, it's just a chemical and they just wash in and wash out regardless of the season that you apply them. So I like the organic fertilizers that way. The native plants, you know, if you've chosen something that's adapted to your soil, once it's established, you, you'll have to irrigate while it establishes itself and roots in. But if it, once it's established, you should not have to be irrigating or fertilizing, uh, other than maybe using an organic mulch, like shredded leaves on it. And that's a good point, because I do hear a lot of native plant advocates saying that these don't need any supplemental water, and that's not true. <laughs> Most of them need at least to get established for the first couple years. Yeah, that's true. They do need, they need a, help, a helping hand when they're coming up. And so how can listeners get in contact with you and listen to your podcast or get your books? Well, uh, probably the easiest way, I mean, you can Google Growing Greener Podcast and that'll come up. Uh, or you can go to the Berkshire Botanical Garden. They're, they're a sponsor of my podcast and a garden column that I write, which they carry, carry on their website, uh, berkshirebotanical.org. Or you can go to my website, which is thomaschristophergardens.com. Great. And we'll also include some of those links in our show notes for our listeners as well. And any final thoughts on environmentally friendly gardening for somebody who's making that transition and maybe a, a little trepidatious about it? Yeah, I, I think, you know, don't make it too complicated. Really spend spend time outdoors. Go to your local nature center. Look at what's growing well in your area and then work with that, you know, and, and it's you don't have to have be a plant collector and have the rarest this and the rarest that. I mean, you can do some of that if you want, but I find it 
just intriguing watching how the landscape grows and develops and and evolves. You know, it's one of the things Larry Weiner said to me, which I think is very true, is he said, we talk a lot about mystery in gardens, how important it is to the uh, beauty of a garden. He said, how much mystery is there in your garden if you're planting according to a plan drafted on paper? You know what's there. But if you're willing to let nature take a role in the garden, there's always going to be unexpected things happening. And most of the time, they're interesting. It's a way that you can, and it's it's a great way to learn how to relate in in a healthy and cooperative way with your environment, which we're all going to have to do much more of if we're going to survive. Well put. Thank you, Thomas. And thank you for sharing your passion for environmentally friendly gardens. And I hope to have you back on the podcast soon. Well, thank you, Kathy. You're, you're great. Just this week, Nature's Lawn and Garden launched a new product aptly named Plant Food Hero, a revolutionary sustainable liquid organic fertilizer harvested entirely from food waste. No overfishing and no fishy smell. It's as good for the environment as it is for your garden. Use Plant Food Hero to grow bigger, more beautiful plants, vegetables, and flowers. Like all their products, Liquid Plant Food Hero is easy to apply and it's effective as a soil feed or a foliar feed. Either way, they guarantee incredible results. For expert advice and to purchase their products, head to their website, natureslawn.com. Beautyberry Plant Profile Beautyberry Calicarpa Americana is a shrub that is native to our Mid-Atlantic area and throughout the southeastern United States. Beautyberry adapts well to various growing conditions, from part shade to full sun, from moist soil to dry. It reaches four to six feet in height and width. Japanese Beautyberry and Chinese Beautyberry are a little less heat tolerant than American Beautyberry and are generally smaller shrubs with smaller berries, although the berries are less hidden in the foliage. It is a showstopper in late summer and early fall when the brilliant purple berries adorn the branches. Birds and other wildlife are fond of the berries as a food source, so you may find your berry display stripped sooner than you would like. The shrub itself is a bit awkward in growth habit, throwing out a long branch here then there, Careful placement is a must, so you can both enjoy the berries and not be constantly fighting its wayward limbs. I planted mine in the back corner of a garden bench near a fence, and that allows me to drape and arrange it as needed. In early spring, you should do a rejuvenation pruning, meaning cut it back to about six inches. The crushed leaves are said to be an excellent mosquito repellent, and scientists are currently testing that beautyberry benefit with promising results. I tried it out myself and did not find it effective, but your mileage may vary. The shrub is famous for its amethyst purple berries. Recent introductions also include white and pink berry versions. There is a small trial garden at the U.S. National Arboretum in Washington, D.C. that is worth visiting in October to view the different cultivars and decide which ones you'd like to add to your home garden. Beautyberry, 
You can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, I have to admit, I've been ignoring a really great plant in my garden, and it wasn't until a friend stopped by this week and was admiring it that I realized, hey, this is a great performer, and that's Abelia. And I have several different versions, a variegated one, a solid one, white blooming, pink blooming, and they have been putting out blooms sporadically all summer long and doing a great job. So yay, Abelia, I'm not going to ignore you any longer. Over at the community garden plot, the marigolds have finally started blooming. Uh, so we're going to be able to enjoy those over the late summer into the fall. And in local gardening events, I wanted to invite you all to join me at the Plants and Gardens Happy Hours. This is a series of three fall Friday evenings full of insider tips and secrets. And they are taking place on September 9th, October 7th, and November 4th. The evenings are $15 per event. They start at 7 p.m. and go to 8 p.m. It's a quick hour full of great background information, behind the scenes look at special gardens, vegetable tips, houseplant tips, cutting flowers. We're going to have different guests and experts on each one of the evenings. So you'll want to sign up for all three. This program is a partnership of GardenCom, the Association of Garden Communicators, and the American Horticultural Society. You can find the first event already open for registration at ahsgardening.org. And if you look on the right-hand column of the front of their website, you'll see that and you'll be able to sign up for that. Hopefully, we will see you there. I also wanted to call your attention to the fact that the August issue of Washington Gardener is now posted online and accessible to all. Our cover story is on cannas. We also have a native plant column by Barry Glick on the enchanting native geranium. We have a special article by one of our interns on the Golden Streets business district competition and that's in downtown dc we have an edible column on planting peas for the fall also in this issue are useful tips for planting flower bulbs great gardening books reviewed fall landscape care a little bit on the background of public food forests and a feature to meet janet crouch a crusader in greening your hoa so lots to find in this issue and i hope you'll subscribe Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden 
turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at Amazon.com or bookshop.org. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to washingtongardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.